Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the lawyer and human rights defender Stella Assange, who wrote the diary in the current Prospect, and she's here to discuss her campaign to free her husband, the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's currently imprisoned in HMP Belmarsh. Stella, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, this case has been going on for so long and is so complicated. Perhaps you can remind us where we are in terms of the legal proceedings to extradite Julian to the USA. Well, Julian has been fighting extradition since he was arrested in the Ecuadorian embassy in April 2019. On that day, it was revealed that there was a sealed indictment for him issued by the Trump administration in relation to publications that WikiLeaks published together with other media, including The Guardian, in 2010 about Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, etc. And the United States wants to put him on trial under chart and he's charged under the 1917 Espionage Act for these publications and their potential sentence is 175 years. So he's he's been fighting extradition since 2019 and the case is now at a stage where a judge has rejected his request to appeal to the high court and he's uh, Julian is now attempting to get a separate panel of two judges to review that decision. Okay, pause there, and then we'll we'll come back to that. And I suppose I I should issue some kind of declaration of interest, which is, as as you say, Julian's um, originally was a collaborator with The Guardian on some of the WikiLeaks um, revelations, quite a lot of the revelations on on WikiLeaks. And it's also public knowledge that we've we've, uh, had our disagreements over the years. Um, And I do absolutely believe that uh, he shouldn't be extradited on the Espionage Act charges that you just mentioned, Stella. And I also think there's a problem which we might come back to discussing about the idea of extraditing people to different countries in relation to their laws on secrecy. I'll I'll come back to that point later. But just to unpack the the legal proceedings. So, Julian was, as you say, arrested in the Ecuadorian embassy. He was put into Belmarsh prison, which is a maximum security prison. And the first set of charges comes from the US, or the first set of evidence, which when I read it seemed really quite weak. Can you just describe what what the original claims about Julian were? Well, the initial indictment, and there have been three altogether, The initial indictment was for a single charge of five years under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's called conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. And this has been described in some places as the hacking charge. But in fact, it doesn't allege any hacking. What the U.S. itself alleges is that 
Julian allegedly agreed to helping Manning. Chelsea Manning, who was the sorry, yes, um, crack a password hash. So not a password, but a hash, which is like a cryptographic identifier of a password. And it was only half a hash. So you can see how how <laughs> complicated. Yeah, yeah. And the purpose, according to the U.S. government, if that attempt had been successful, which was it was never successful, and there's no evidence that was it was even attempted, the the purpose, according to the U.S. government, would have been that Manning would then have been able to log onto a computer to access the very same material that she had access to already, but under a different identity. So, so Julian's argument, as I understood it, in relation to that charge is that he was doing what any journalist was, would do, which is to try and protect the identity of a source. Well, it's actually not even that, because um, what the US is alleging is technically a technical impossibility. It wouldn't have... Um, there's no actual discussion about the purpose of um, cracking a password hash for what computer or any of that. And of course, um, at the stage that this alleged conversation between Manning and Julian uh, is supposed to have happened, Manning had already submitted most of the material to WikiLeaks, so it doesn't even make sense. Um, so, so that was the first indictment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yes. And then what happened with the second indictment? Three weeks later, Three weeks after Julian's arrest, a second indictment came in, and that added to the single five-year charge an additional 170 years under the U.S. Espionage Act. And those charges, as I said, they all relate to the publications about the Iraq War, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, the Rules of Engagement, which was part of the collateral murder video release, um, and the U.S. State Department cables. These 170 years relate to receiving, possessing, and communicating def national defense information to the public. Um, there's no um, allegation that Julian helped Manning uh, uh, acquire this information because, as I said, she was an, an intelligence an analyst, and this is what she was working with every day. Um, and Manning was a whistleblower who gave the information to Julian. So um, the charge extends the culpability of the source to uh, the receiver and publisher. Again, pause there because there's quite a lot to unpack even in that. And uh, I know some, some listeners will be familiar with all of this, but, but some won't be. I mean, you, you mentioned in passing the collateral murder video. Again, for listeners who, who don't remember, that was uh, a story, I think, broken in the New Yorker, which was a revelation. It was the, the footage from the cab of the helicopter as American troops shot up uh, people on the ground, who included uh, a Reuters uh, crew with, with their cameras. Uh, and Reuters had been trying to get at that video for a long time and, and, until it was put into the public domain by, by Chelsea Manning and Julian. Yeah, on the 5th of April 2010, Julian had a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. and uh, released the video and it had a massive impact. This was a turning point for the Iraq War uh, because for years the reporting about the Iraq War had been grinding on uh, through, well, um, curated information coming out of the Pentagon, basically. And this video that Reuters had attempted to obtain through Freedom of Information Act requests had been, well, according to the Pentagon, lost. And and then Julian and WikiLeaks received it from Chelsea Manning, published it, and it gave a completely new um, uh, uh, energy to the debate around the Iraq War. You mentioned a third indictment. Um, <laughs> what was included in that one? Well, the third indictment was, it was, it's a very curious indictment. So it came halfway through Julian's extradition 
hearings. Um, it didn't add any new charges, but it said it said it was adding context. And the context it added was the introduction of a key witness, an Icelandic man who had um, for some time uh, been a, a volunteer in a chat room, an IRC it's called, uh, about WikiLeaks and had been um, volunteering as a, to handle other volunteers, people who wanted to volunteer helping um, WikiLeaks with, I don't know, um, nothing nothing uh, significant, but just a kind of outreach to the public and so on. And this Icelandic man is also um, a convicted fraudster. He had actually been convicted in 2013 of um, um, forging Julian's signature and stealing, I think, 50 or 60,000 US dollars of donations that were supposed to go to WikiLeaks um, and he rerouted to his own account and so on. So he, he went to prison um, for fraud and also um, for um, sex crimes. And in his trial, he was diagnosed by a court-appointed psychiatrist with, uh, of, with having sociopathy. So um, the credibility of this source is um, obviously uh, not very high. And so he added context to the so-called um, computer charge. But then a few months later, an Icelandic investigative team spoke to him and he retracted it all. And he said that the indictment was, um, that the allegations as they relate to him in the, in the third indictment, it's called the second superseding indictment, um, are, are false. Am I right in thinking, I mean, you mentioned in the first charge there was this um, technical aspect of encouraging stroke mentoring Chelsea Manning in aspects of, um, uh, let's call it, um, computer, um, I don't know what the word is, computer intrusion. Com computer intrusion, okay. Um, it, it, am I right in thinking the second in, in indictment, there are, there are more serious that, uh, allegations about the extent that Julian went to to uh, try and break into secret databases? No, all the, that's from the second superseding indictment and those allegations that try to tie Julian. It's, it's an incredible indictment, really, because um, it has, it cites... Uh, sentences out of context at um, conferences that Julian didn't say but someone else said um, and uh, the the second superseding indictment what you're referring to I think is um, claims that he uh, that he somehow um encouraged others to commit computer intrusion. But as I said, this relies on the testimony that has since been retracted by this oh, the, Icelandic right, source. Right, got it. Um, so just to complete <laughs> this bit, but I think it's, it's quite important to get the, the, the timeline in place. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay, that was a little interruption for a phone call from Julian Central. Belmarsh is a, a, a serial um, uh, turn of events. Um, so just to, just to complete the timeline, um, the case was originally heard by a magistrate mm -hmm. in Westminster uh, who refused the injunction, but on, on one ground, which was that um, th that uh, she feared for the, the, the implications for Julian's mental health. If he was were to be uh, extradited, is, is, I've got that right, haven't I? Yes, it was um, a combination of the likely conditions that he will face, um, his um, the assessment by the psychiatrist about his mental state, and also his diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum. 
Um, so at that point, things were looking hopeful. The US government appeals, uh, and that's when the, the next court up um, uh, overrules the magistrate um, and says, no, he must go, and refuses appeal. So that's, that takes us up to the present, where you're now seeking leave to appeal. And as I understand it, if this case were then heard, this would be the first time that the full um, uh, extent of the uh, allegations and also the defense would be heard. Um, it would, there, there are some new um, pieces of ed evidence that didn't exist when, when this extradition hearing was heard back in 2020, information that has come out since. Uh, for example, what I explained about this Icelandic source that retracted his testimony and so on, um, and also a key investigation which came out in October 2021, um, which revealed that the CIA under Trump, um, under Pompeo, I should say, had been um, making elaborating plans uh, to kidnap or even assassinate Julian inside the embassy and um, that these discussions about possibly assassinating him had taken place at the highest level of the US government during the Trump administration. And in addition to this, there's also a court case occurring in Spain in which, uh, which corroborates this uh, investigation about Pompeo and the CIA because the security company, which was a Spanish security company, which was operating inside the embassy, was moonlighting for the CIA and collecting information, um, installing microphones, installing cameras for the CIA without the knowledge of Ecuador and physically transporting the hard drives to the United States every two weeks. And every, every week uh, we find out new incredible facts like just three weeks ago it was revealed that the Spanish police had withheld part of the hard drive that they had obtained, they had seized from the um, security contractor's house and um, it was almost by well, luck and also um, perseverance of the um, defense that the, the full uh, set, or at least most of the full set, was able to be um, obtained. And within the part that the Spanish police had withheld, there was directories um, in the computer directories uh, that said uh, embassy, um, CIA. So you had the, the, the pathway to, sorry, it's getting really complicated. <laughs> um, basically directories in the computer that had been um, withheld by Spanish police, but are now part of the evidence again. And this, of course, put Spanish police in a in a pickle, um, and this kind of thing is is the extraordinary nature of this case just becomes more and more evident as time goes on. So what what's emerged is that while Julian was seeking refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy, the CIA had was monitoring all the time, and and some of that leaked out into the press, didn't it? It was more than just uh, monitoring. I mean, Julian's um, lawyer, Baltazar Garzon, who was leading, who leads the international legal team, um, he was followed to his home in these hard drives that were seized. There are pictures of him outside his home. Um, so, uh, so the security company was actually following him around. Um, there's, um, 
instructions. There were emails uh, that are also within the possession of the investigators in Spain, um, instructing the guards to obtain a nappy of our six-month-old baby in order to analyze the DNA. Um, there are instructions to uh, record conversations, meetings that Julian has with his lawyers. So it's not a passive, um, incidental kind of monitoring. There were active measures being taken uh, that um, are uh, crimes, like, uh, and also make it impossible for Julian to have a fair trial if he's extradited to the United States. His legally privileged meetings with his lawyers in which his defense strategy was discussed and um, both in relation to an extradition or a future U.S. trial, all this has been violated. After the break, we'll talk more about Stella's campaign about the criminalization of journalism. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. Visit Prospect Magazine, all one word, .co.uk and subscribe. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. No. Okay, so th thank you for that. That's, I think that <laughs> brings us up to date on, on the very complex legal cases. Um, now, you, you wrote the diary for us in, in Prospect, um, and I suppose it, it would be um, interesting for people to know how Julian is and what kind of access you and your children have to him at the moment. Julian is in a single cell in Belmarsh High Security Prison, and he's been there throughout uh, since the day of his arrest. In the beginning, he was extremely isolated. Um, he was in the healthcare wing, and since January 2020, he's been in the general population. He was in the healthcare wing, and that was um, because the prison deemed that he was an acute suicide risk. The prison population, um, sorry, some prisoners who were working within the healthcare wing put in a petition to get him moved out of out of healthcare into the general population because it was really um, making things worse because there was increased isolation. Uh, when he was interacting with others, it was with people who were either extremely sick or extremely, well, mentally and physically unwell, and he was there for six months. When he got into the general population, COVID hit, and so for six months, I wasn't able to visit him at all. He, he couldn't even be visited by his lawyers. 
And in fact, when the second part of the extradition hearing hearings um, resumed in September 2020, he hadn't seen his lawyers in person for that same period, six months. Everything had been over the phone or um, video link, and it's very difficult to prepare a defense under those conditions, I mean, let alone being in a prison, but with the additional difficulties and the backlog and getting slots uh, that occurred under COVID, it was extremely difficult. Um, and since the COVID restrictions have been lifted, we've been able to visit Julian about once or twice a week. And Julian is... Well, he's very isolated. I mean, Belmarsh is a remand prison. It's not meant to house people for several years. And the ex the restrictions are extreme. Uh, the way that a prison like that is managed, being underfunded and all sorts of um, such related problems, um, they keep people isolated as long as possible. So on a on average, Julian spends about 21, 22 hours a day locked in his cell. He eats in his cell alone, not not out of choice, but because everyone has to eat in their cell on their own. Um, he's able to go to the yard most days, but not every day, um, never longer than an hour. Usually it's less. And the yard is concrete with two layers of, of um, mesh on on over his head so it's a it's a a dire environment just uh, yesterday the last two days when I spoke to him he said he hadn't slept because there was someone new on his wing right next to him who had started yelling at 2 a.m. in the morning um, yelling threats to well he supposes someone else in the prison out the window um, and had this morning he said he had smashed up his cell and broken the this other prisoner, not Julian. <laughs> um, the, the, the cell was smashed up, the toilet was smashed up, so they had moved him. But this is the kind of thing that Julian has to deal with all the time. But he's allowed, uh, it's free association with other prisoners for two hours a day, is that right? So he's, he's getting some company. Um, association happens, I'm not sure if it's every day, and... I think it's under it's under two hours. It it depends also on how on the staffing in the wing and all these things, so it's not predictable that way. And when people say, "How is he? How is he? How do you find him now?" It's a very difficult question to answer because he it varies from week to week, and obviously, for example, when the when the decision came down that um, leave to appeal was denied uh, that was caused a lot of anxiety and sleepless nights and so on um, and then Daniel Ellsberg passed and that was also a very difficult uh, Daniel Ellsberg we should just in, 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 um, Daniel Ellsberg was the Pentagon Papers whistleblower uh, from 50 years ago who was condemned at the time but regarded by many as a hero at the end of his life. Yes, he was He was a friend of Julian. They met for the first time in 2010. He came to London, and they had um, seen each other since in, in the embassy. Ellsberg had come several times to visit, and during the extradition hearing, Ellsberg was a witness. Uh, there's often a... Um, the comparison is often drawn between Ellsberg and Julian, but of course Ellsberg was a whistleblower, and Julian's not a whistleblower. There is a parallel, though, in the sense that here was somebody condemned by the state. Richard Nixon certainly wanted him locked up for practically for treason, and there was a similar attempt to put him under surveillance. I think in the, in in the run to, to the trial, which is why his trial actually ne never took place. Yeah, they tried to, well, they were going to put him on trial for violations of the Espionage Act, 
um, he was working for the Rand Corporation at the time and gave the Pentagon Papers uh, to uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times, I think. Um, and it collapsed because the so-called CIA plumbers um, had been to his psychiatrist's office to try to dig up um, dirt on him and, and, well, very similar to actually um, what's been done to Julian because his medical, um, his, his medical visits have also been spied on. Um, but there was also, Ellsberg explains that there were even um, plans in his case to assassinate him. Uh, I think the, the political context at the time uh, allowed, the case collapsed because there was, I think, a much stronger um, uh, presence of the First Amendment. Uh, whereas now we have a deterioration that has occurred over a number of years in which uh, press freedom and freedom of expression protections have been eroded. I, I want to just go down that little byway about the Pentagon Papers because it's, it's interesting to me that the people involved in that case, including uh, Ellsberg, who I also met, and the lawyers from the New York Times, you, you must know James Goodall, who has written a book about that case, the Pentagon Papers case, uh, have written vehemently in support of Julian Assange and saying that they can't understand why journalists are not more vocal in support of him because they view this as a serious threat to journalism and journalists. And yet, it, certainly in the West, there's been mixed support for Julian, I think that would be fair to say. Can you explain why you think that is? Well, I could speak for hours about that. Um, I think the, the, the big picture explanation is that WikiLeaks provided a innovative um, form of journalism that challenged the type of journalism that had been that had happened until that point um, in 2010 when these big publications occurred newspapers were trying to find a viable financial model and hadn't quite learned how to exist in the era of the internet. And here came WikiLeaks, which was solely uh, internet-based, um, dealt in um, digitally, had a cryptographic um, Dropbox, which meant that um, it used cryptography to anonymize sources, which allowed it to uh, get very high quality um, submissions um, and protect its sources, which kind of earned it a reputation over years because WikiLeaks actually started in 2006 and published about, um, you know, many different countries. Um, but around 2008 started publishing about um, Guantanamo Bay, I think, is one of the first big um, publications where the source, uh, well, I, I don't know for sure, but was probably a, a U.S. Um, whistleblower. And by 2010, um, WikiLeaks had published, had already made a, a name for itself um, and was solely reader-funded uh, reader uh, through donations. So it was a completely different model. It embraced uh, data journalism in a different way. Um, it um, had this um, cryptographic Dropbox, which since has been adopted uh, by you know all the major media organizations. Um, and I think uh, was a kind of the new kid on the block that was making. Uh, big waves. And so as a, as a newcomer with 
massive influence. I think this was um, seen as a, a a rival and a challenge to the existing um, media landscape. So there was that. Um, and Julian also had a platform in which he was a media critic, and that put him in an adversarial relationship with the media. And then there are, you know, many specific things that I could go into, but I think that's the big picture. Yeah. I suppose one has to say that part of the picture was what he did in 2016 in the election uh, and his part in um, revealing documents about Hillary Clinton. And I think some mainstream journalists at that point felt anxious about that and began to say, well, where's this stuff coming from? And is Julian now a conduit for, frankly, for foreign powers? Is, how, how do you answer, I mean, that, that must be a criticism you're familiar with. How do you, how do you answer that? Well, um, I think the only uh, the only important answer is whether the information was important, whether it was relevant in the context of an election. And this is something that a court in the Southern District of New York looked into when the Democratic National Committee tried to sue Julian in uh, after the 2016 elections in relation to these publications. And that court... Um, throughout the lawsuit by the DNC on First Amendment grounds. And in fact, the, the judge went as far as to say that this, this information in the context of an election in which the electorate is informed about uh, the goings-on of um, one of the candidates is of the highest public importance. And you can't... Uh, one couldn't imagine um, information that was uh, uh, of a higher public importance than to inform the electorate. The publications themselves uh, were the DNC publications and the Podesta emails. And um, in spite of um, what is often um, repeated, um, there's no evidence of who the source was, and in fact, Julian denies, he has said openly that the source was not um, Russia. But regardless, the source should be irrelevant if the information belongs in the public. And what that information revealed was that um, one of the candidates, um, the Hillary Clinton campaign, had colluded with the Democratic National Committee in order to... Um, uh, throw the primaries uh, against Bernie Sanders. And of course, this was at a time when Bernie Sanders was very popular. The DNC was getting donations from people who were who thought that Bernie Sanders had a chance of, of being elected, and so were donating to the DNC. But in fact, there was a secret agreement between Hillary Clinton and the DNC. This is something that Donna Brazil writes about she discovered the agreement, the written agreement, and so that the, the primaries in the Democratic Party were rigged. And of course, this is of utmost public interest, um, and especially because at the time, the polls were showing that had S Sanders run against Trump, he would have won, but Hillary was always po polling badly against Trump. The second, um, I think, key revelation of, revelations of these, of these publications um, is that the Hillary campaign was actually boosting Trump because Hillary's campaign wrongly assumed that if Trump, in spite of the polling, that if Trump ran, um, she would win. Uh, and so you have these emails where the Hillary campaign's contacting um, CNN, MSNBC, and so on, asking them to give Trump airtime. So, I mean, what got Trump elected? Well, um, the U.S. electorate and the Hillary campaign. There's a very, <laughs> there's a very um, cogent uh, um, argument uh, that the Hillary campaign um, 
and the way in which the primaries, both for the Democrats and arguably also for the for the Republicans, were rigged, led to uh, not just Hillary's defeat, but Trump's. If there is mixed support amongst journalists in the West for Julian, you, in your in your diary in Prospect, you quote the the Booker Prize winning author Shehan Karun Atalaka saying, quotes, he's a hero to many writers in South Asia because freedom of speech is not something we take for granted. Journalism has been criminalized in our parts of the world, and so we're looking to the West to see how this case is prosecuted and how it ends up. Can you talk a bit about the, the, the sort of the support that Julian is getting around the world and uh, what the core reasons for that are? Well, Julian has enormous support just I mean, I see it everywhere I go. We just had a campaign um, online to wish him a happy birthday. It was his fifth birthday in Belmarsh Prison. Um, it was an Australian-led campaign. He got 6,000 messages in a week. Um, I I was in Switzerland uh, yesterday at a press conference. There was a lot of interest. I was I had a private audience with the Pope a week ago. Um, yes, um, Pope Francis received me and the children, and I was able to have a, a one-on-one conversation with him. Um, and can you say what that involved? I can't. Um, I can. Oh, go on. You uh, could even transparency with WikiLeaks. We had. Um, first a, a photo opportunity. So I'm very grateful to, to Pope Francis for allowing that because he could perfectly have had a private audience and it, you know, without any publicity at all. Um, but he chose to publicize it. And um, look, Pope Francis is, he's Argentinian. He lived through the military dictatorship in Argentina. He's been following this case and he's, well, as I guess any, it's kind of a, a qualification to be a pope. You have to be politically aware. And I found him to be um, very, provided, he provided comfort um, to us as a family, um, but also understood the political dimension of Julian's imprisonment. And did he send a message to Julian? He sent a message to Julian back in March 2021 through the um, chaplain in Belmarsh Prison. So there's been ongoing um, attention on the part of the Vatican to what is going on. And uh, so there's also uh, Lula da Silva, who... I think on during the when he was here for the king's coronation, gave a press conference and talked about Julian, and that Julian has to be released, and said to the press, "You have to um, come together and and demand for him to be released. This is your this is your freedom, and so on." Um, and also the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, but. You know, it's it's not just Latin America. The Prime Minister of Australia has said enough is enough. That Julian should come home. This matter should be brought uh, should be brought to an end. Um, the UN has issued numerous reports and called for his release. Amnesty International, all the press freedom groups, like all the all the subject experts. You know, we were talking about how complex this case is. But you don't have to be an expert in the case in order to form an opinion. You look at the subject experts, you look at the press freedom groups, you look at the human rights organizations, you look at the UN, and they've looked into this in detail. And they have a a clear position on this case, that Julian should be released, and that this case poses a major, an unprecedented threat to press freedom globally. I mentioned earlier, I mean, there are two things that trouble me about the case. One one is the use of uh, a law designed to uh, counter spying. That's what the Espionage Act was. And the fact that it has no public interest defense. And the, the second one is this, this question of extraterritoriality, that, that uh, 
what the US is doing is targeting somebody in the UK who's not even a UK national uh, and saying you broke our laws. And I always try and think of what would happen if there was an American journalist who happened to be in the UK who say had been reporting on, I don't know, India's nuclear weapons program. Uh, and if the Indians said that's against our national secrecy laws, uh, is there any chance that, that that journalist would be extradited to India because it offended uh, those laws? Is is that something that is that? I mean, that, that seems to be a, a reason to be really anxious about this case. But is is that something that can be introduced into legal argument? It, yes, it it forms part of the of the legal argument, and it is of course completely um, preposterous that the they're bringing uh, a case against a foreign national abroad. Um, extending U.S. secrecy laws across borders uh, to encompass the entire world um, and everyone in the world. <laughs> uh, it, it goes even further than that. So one of the arguments that, that they've used um, is that Julian does not um, enjoy, Julian does not enjoy First Amendment protections. And the reason they give is that Julian's not a not a U.S. national, and he's abroad. So where does this come from? Basically, comes from uh, the U.S. Uh, war on drugs in Latin America, where um, U.S. law enforcement agencies operated outside of their borders, apprehended um, drug barons took them to the United States and then put them on trial. And then when they were on trial, they tried to argue that their Fourth Amendment unreasonable search and seizure rights, constitutional rights, had been violated. And the answer was, no, they weren't because you were in Mexico and you're Mexican. But if you had been American, uh, then the constitutional rights would have kicked in. So this is an insane um, premise that that you can apply what the U.S. is saying is that it is applying its um, criminal statutes abroad, but constitutional protections do not apply um, to you if you're abroad. So this is just a um, extreme uh, abuse of of the legal statutes and. Um, should shouldn't be pro, um, shouldn't be um, tolerated because of course if you if one country is applying its laws into another country then that other country is giving up its jurisdiction effectively um, to to a foreign power um, so I don't I don't understand how um, this case hasn't been thrown out frankly. I think I think there's been a recent development where some of the people who journalists who have worked with or written about Julian have been approached to see if they can give evidence. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, this is an article that came out um, about a week ago in Rolling Stone, and it reveals that British journalists in the last couple of months have been approached and basically uh, softly um, pressured into cooperating with the prosecution against Julian. And it's quite extraordinary. I think this, this what it shows um, is that the United States has a, a weak case and is trying to um, trying to uh, bolster it um, by by getting um, what they hope would be uh, uh, critics against Julian uh, to to uh, help the prosecution and um, thankfully uh, the the four journalists British journalists who have been approached and are mentioned in this piece uh, have 
have refused to cooperate with the prosecution. Uh, they understand that this case is an attack on press freedom and they don't want to take part in um, in Julian's um, persecution. Um, but I think it's it's quite revealing because remember Julian is being prosecuted in relation to the publications in 2010 and for 13 years the United States has kept on changing its its indictments and trying to get new witnesses and so on. This is not uh, the the solid um, prosecution does. This is what a, a, a prosecution that's desperate to to uh, um, justify its own existence um, does. And I'd like to add that if there are others who have been approached and that are listening, uh, I'd ask them for, to please come forward and, and contact Julian's lawyers. Well, thank you, Stella, for joining us. We will continue to monitor this case. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do read Stella's diary online. It's in the current issue of Prospect, but the newest issue of Prospect is about to hit the streets. Um, But the issue that Stella's in has got a fantastic cover story on the future of conservatism by David Aronovich and a fascinating piece by Jen Stout on Ukraine's war of words and language. While you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diaries from our writer of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, and Mike Brearley, the former England cricket captain. It's very different in tone from this, but it's tended to be that, and will give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast. Click on the link in the show notes of this episode.